welcome to another stop on this church history road trip. My name is Rick Kleinard, and I'm joined here as always with Greg Moore. Greg, how you doing today? Doing great, Rick. How are things going with you? Uh, doing great. Looking forward to today's conversation. Um, but before we get into it uh, and have our, our, our discussion, Greg, both of us are teachers. We both uh, have taught in, in the higher academic level. Has there ever been a time where either you taught something incorrectly in the classroom and then had to fix it later, or you thought something or believed something to be true that you had to go back and you find that, found out later that it wasn't accurate? Well, the thing that immediately comes to mind for me was uh, for years, and I told all my, oh, I can't believe it, I told all my English professors this throughout the years, and they all just kind of like looked at me and was like, okay, kid. But I remember being in elementary school, probably first or second grade, and Robert Frost <laughs> came <laughs> to our elementary school, <laughs> and I remember him doing that, the poem about the snowy woods and there's a path and all that. And I remember that very vividly. I think that was all of Robert Frost. That's pretty much oh, everything. Right. That's the only one I remember. Um, and I would tell people, yeah, I, you know, we would be studying Robert Frost in the classroom. By the way, teacher, I I remember seeing Robert Frost in person. Um, it was only not that many years ago where I happened to see a, a bio or something about Robert Frost, and he died in 1963 <laughs> <laughs> when my mom was like two years old. Um, so <laughs> I don't know who that guy was. I don't know what was going on, but yeah, that's what I came to mind. I've heard this story so many times, I can't stop laughing. Uh, just the thought of little elementary age Greg going, I met Robert Frost, and your teacher's thinking you're an idiot because he died in 63. They were so gracious. Oh, wow. And so... Um, so anyway, that that's a comedic uh, form of that. Uh, let's see, I'll, I'll share one. I was uh, doing my student teaching in, in English for my English ed degree, and uh, I remember teaching a whole high school class on a certain grammatical concept. And uh, the my observing professor was there, and she graciously let me go through the whole lesson. And then after it was over, she I sat down with her, and she goes, okay, a few things. Number one, Everything you said was wrong, <laughs> and I I had said it in a certain way. It was one of those things where you like you start a certain way and it takes you down a trail. I don't know what it was about. So the next class period, I brought them all in and said, "All right, guys, hey, I'm an idiot, and let me redo this." And they were really gracious about it. Um, so sometimes it can be funny when we when we make mistakes, but there is a danger um, that is in teaching things incorrectly, uh, wanting to make sure you cover everything rightly. A life verse um, that I have in my teaching is First Timothy four sixteen. You know, keep keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching, and persevere in these things. For by doing so, you save both yourself and your hearers. And that idea of persevering in teaching means that I'm, we, we always, as educators, as teachers, as pastors, we always have to be studying, making sure we're getting things correctly, that we're communicating that, them correctly. And that takes us to our discussion today. We wanted to stop on this church history road trip and talk about some of the earliest church heresies. Now, there are some later, and some of the ones later are just recapitulated from the ones before. But what we want to talk about today are some of these early church heresies. Now, I have about five that I thought we could talk about today. Okay. Um, and you and I haven't kind of, we haven't had any kind of pre-show where we're going to talk about I've this. I've never seen you before in my life. Never. I've never, we've never met. <laughs> and so this is going to be good. First, I want to talk about one of the earliest ones, 
we see, and it's almost not so much as a false teaching per se, because it kind of finds its way into all the other ones we're going to talk about today, and that's the idea of Gnosticism. Yep. All right, so the Gnostics. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about Gnostics, or you want me to go ahead and start? No, I, I can. Um, from my understanding, Gnostics were found not just in Christianity, but even before the founding of Christianity. You can find it in a lot of different philosophies, belief systems. It's, it's really an umbrella term. Mm-hmm. And if I had to boil down Gnosticism to one thing, it would be that a Gnostic is going to believe that they have some type of special knowledge, some type of... Um, knowledge about truth or about the, a lot of times it's about the nature of the universe and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, one of the things that I, I think is interesting about the Gnostics um, is that they are so varied, even within the, if we want to call them Christian Gnostics, even though many of them I would say were outside of what I would consider Orthodox Christianity. Um, a lot of them believed um, the idea that there was some type of being, some type of spiritual being, and they kind of, in the beginning of time or whenever, they emanated a lot of or created a lot of other spiritual beings. And it was one of the, those spiritual beings that created matter. A lot of times it's like by accident, it's, it's considered by most Gnostics to be evil. And so think about that from a from a Christian point of view. If we open the book of Genesis right there at the beginning, what is going on? There's a God there that is creating matter. And so a lot of these Gnostics are going to be equating the Jewish God to some type of evil angel or evil um, aeon or whatever they want to call it. Yeah, I've heard it. The uh, the demiurge yes. is the term there. And you're right. that the, the Gnostics claim some kind of secret knowledge. And these Gnostic Gospels really kind of began, came to light around 1945 with the, the discovery in Nakamadi, where up, up to that point, all we knew about the Gnostics was what their opponents were writing about mm-hmm. them. And so the Gnostics had this idea you had, you had the Gospel of Thomas, You've got the Gospel of Judas, which is the oldest one we've discovered uh, within the last 10 to 15 years. And they all claim to have a secret knowledge that Jesus taught his disciples privately. Even the Gospel of Thomas says these are the secret teachings of Jesus that he gave to his disciples privately. And you found that they were really, like you said, it's a, it's a parasite religion. They combine elements of platonic dualism, which is the idea of there's good, there's bad, and usually spirit is good and flesh is evil. Um, you have some Persian uh, Zoroastrianism, some of the Roman mystery cults, and then you have what we're going to talk about specifically in here, how it, how it affected Christianity. And specifically, like you said, you have the idea that, you know, Je- they use the term that Jehovah mm-hmm. is a demiurge created by this supreme God, and that Jesus came to the earth, according to Gnostic Christianity, Jesus came to the earth as another um, demiurge who was going to show the pathway back to the super supreme God. And so you have this salvation comes then from understanding the secret knowledge and then being released from your physical prison. Uh, the idea. You also had a growth a little bit outside of that with Gnostics. You had the early church heresy of Docetism, which because their view was so strongly that the physical body was evil, Jesus couldn't have had a physical body if he was going to be God. So he only seemed to have a physical body. That was really picked up on, I think it was uh, Basilides, who was a, another Gnostic Christian. He cr- created this amazing story. I mean, for a work of fiction, it's it's a it's a lot of little plot twists and stuff when you put it all together, but one of the, probably the key plot twists in, in his idea of matter and the spiritual side of things 
was he was he would focus on um, Christ going to the cross and um, where um, uh, Simon is asked to carry the cross of Christ. Uh, according to Basilides, uh, Jesus did a little miracle here where he made himself look like Simon and then Simon now looked like Jesus and Jesus went to the cross. I mean, I'm sorry, Simon went to the cross instead of Jesus, which is really messed up if you think about it. Yeah. Um, but it's, that was just a way to get around that phys- phys- like the physical dying of, of Christ that we see. And you see some instances of that when you talk about the, the Muslim theory of the, of the crucifixion and resurrection mm-hmm. and the idea that Allah made one of Jesus' enemies, probably Judas, to look like him, and he was crucified, and Jesus went free. So you see that there. But a lot of this Gnostic thought is going to find its way into some of these other church heresies that we're going to talk about today. So there's Gnosticism. The next we see is Marcion. Marcion's idea, he had Gnostic views, but he also had anti-Semitic views in his idea. Uh, He still held to that view, just like the Gnostics, that the spirit was good, the flesh was evil, but he also kind of advocated for two gods. You had the demiurge creator of the Old Testament, which we Gnostics believe would be evil. And then you had the God of love, the father of Jesus in the New Testament. And he had Jesus as being just a purely spiritual being. And one of the things about Marcion that kicked, that, that sticks out is his, his ignoring of the Old Testament and only focusing on uh, the gospel of a heavily edited gospel of Luke and ten of Paul's letters. Yeah, yeah. And when when you think matter is evil, and you're looking at the book of Luke, it opens with the birth of Christ, and right. so so he takes that out basically. Um, yeah, and the the other thing about him is when it came like to the practical application to a lot of this. Okay, flesh is weak and all that. So they're going to end up shunning sex and alcohol. And they are going to, um, in some ways, be similar to some of the monastics that we'll, that we'll see later, but um, but kind of a looser version of that in a way. But yeah, it, a lot of times when we talk of Marcion, it's because we're talking about the, the edited version of, of Scripture that made the Christians then have to come up and say, no, you're missing some stuff here, and kind of um, relay the, I guess, the passed on, um, tradition of saying, here's what was passed down to us from the apostles, here's what's in Scripture. Yeah, the, the development of the canon um, really took shape as a reaction to Marcion and then a later uh, church heresy, uh, Montanus. And so uh, that's, a, that's a good key point to make there. And then you also see this in the writings of John. The, the, his, his letters are later um, in the creation of the canon, and he all, always put some emphasis on the physicality of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in John 1, 1, the word became flesh. In 1 John, that which we have seen, which we have heard, you know, uh, we, we saw with our own eyes. He mentions in the Gospel of John the, the touching of Jesus after his resurrection by Thomas and others. And so he, he seems to indicate that an awful lot in his writings so that you see this, it's starting to come up during the lifetime of John, so he has to speak to it. I would say that one of the disciples of John Polycarp uh, also, he was considered the hammer to the heretics, and he was was very much a a person, too, that that did focus on that and was combating heresies, but a lot of it had to deal with 
No, there was a physicality there. It wasn't just spiritual. And then Polycarp's disciple Irenaeus with his against heresies. Yeah. Let's see how far we can go. All right, I'm, I'm done. Okay, uh, me too. Then there's Greg Moore. <laughs> That's right. <Okay. laughs> so uh, the next one, uh, Manichaeanism, um, taught by uh, Matt Manny, who uh, really focused on more of a, it's kind of a Persian um, Zoroastrianism again. There's that dualistic, but for, for Manny, it was there's a god of light and there's a god of darkness. And that that god of darkness somehow got some of the light and was creating the physical world. So there again, you see the Gnostic idea that you've got a, the creation that exists is the result of an act of evil, not an act of good, which runs completely uh, contradictory to the testimony of Genesis. And then that light that came or that, that the God of darkness used to create the physical world, some of that light got trapped in the souls of men. And so salvation then is when that light is freed upon your death. Um, so talk to, talk to us a little bit about uh, Manichaeanism. No. Okay, done with it. <laughs> no, so I would say Augustine is usually where I bring up this particular belief because that was one of the one of several things that, that he kind of dabbled in. Mm-hmm. And he was, this was considered kind of an academic, you know, uh, just like later on he would, he would um, get skepticism uh, and kind of put that under his belt. Well, it was the same, same idea here. Basically, there was a lot of people in his circles that were following that belief. And um, he got really into it, wanted to know more. The local teachers kind of reached their limit of philosophically, we don't know any more than, you know, we don't have the answers to the questions you're asking. And so um, one of their big prophets, kind of like Billy Graham of the day, except for this heretical belief, came to town and he said, this is my chance. I'm going to ask my questions. So he goes to the guy, asks the questions. He doesn't really get the answers that he wants. And that kind of puts him on the road to rejecting that belief system. You and I both, I think we are fans of Augustine. And um, what do you think it is that, that drew Augustine to the teachings of Manny? My personal thought is because Manny stressed celibacy, mm-hmm. and we know from reading confessions that Augustine struggled sexually. Yep. Um, so my first thought is that's that's kind of the in his pursuit of realizing that his life had been pursuing the wrong things, he he went here, and we're going to see that later on with some other church heresies too. That there are some appealing things about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to throw that out there to you. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would I would probably agree with you that I had something to do with it. I think he wanted a an answer practically to what what his own experience to answer those things. I think philosophically he wanted something that was um, that was rational that he could that he could um, uh, I guess not be ashamed of you know in in society. Um, it was something that was accepted, and it doesn't sound like. Um, he always got the right answers about Christianity that he wanted either growing up. And so um, I, th- I think he was looking at a number of different places. And it, it would take him a long time to come back to find Ambrose and, and yeah. others that could really answer those those deeper theological, philosophical questions. Yeah, I like his interactions with Ambrose where he says, I, I didn't agree with him right away, but the, the guy was just intelligent and compelling, and he liked to listen to him. Yep. All right, so we got two left. Uh, next one would be, um, it has two two aspects to it, and that's monarchianism. Now, there are basically two types of it. As we know, there is, let's tackle one at a time. The first one is what's called adoptionism, and that's the idea that Jesus wasn't fully God, that he was, he wasn't divine, but he was a man that had been adopted to become the Messiah. This is sometimes called dynamic 
monarchianism. This is taught by Paul of Samosota. Um, and his idea was that the divine logos of Greek philosophy infused Jesus at his baptism, which would take Jesus away. Jesus is no longer the God-man. He's the man who became God. Um, we see this, I've seen this pop its head up in recent years. I'll give a few uh, statements. Um, growing up, my dad was a big fan of like, um, you know, preachers that would send tapes. And, you know, he was like, kind of what we're doing, podcasts. He had tapes. And I remember listening. We were on a, on a road trip, and Dad popped in one of these tapes, which was just riveting entertainment for a, for a, for a road trip. Um, and in the state and in the sermon, the guy said, the, the pastor said, there was a time when Jesus did not know who he was. He did not know that he was the Son of God. And that at a point, maybe at 13, he realized who he was. And that's when he began his ministry. And I remember even as an unbeliever listening to that thinking, but if he's truly God fully, that can't be true. And so you, you almost see a little bit of a hybrid of adoptionism. And then um, there's a popular, um, now it's not current popular, but a popular back in our day of Christian, in Christian music. There was a song, won't name the band, won't name the song because I don't want to offend. But in it, they have very adoptionism mindset of like Jesus realized what he was what he was born to do and decided he can't be Joseph and Mary's son at home anymore. He's got to go and do what he was born born to do, but he didn't realize he had to come to a realization of it. Was that Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run? Uh, yeah, we weren't <laughs> going to name it. Yeah. Not many people know that about okay. that song. There's a hidden meaning in it. Um, it's a secret meaning that, right. that only Bruce shared with his <laughs> closest followers. That's correct. All right, then the other view of monarchianism is probably the one we hear the most of now, and that's called modalism, mm-hmm. or that modalistic uh, view of monarchianism. Yeah, I, get, I would occasionally get this in a church history class where we were discussing the Trinity, and someone would say, oh, I can explain the Trinity, and... They would start explaining him like, you, sir, are a heretic. <laughs> do you salivate when they say that? Like, oh, I can do it. You're like, please, by all means. Yeah, unless they pull out the Athanasian Creed. And then they got um, you. Yeah, they gotcha. yeah. Um, yeah it's, uh, it, it's, I would say it's very common. It's a very common belief. And it's basically the idea that, that there's one God that just kind of goes, I would say, goes into different modes at different times. Like, almost like shifting gears in a car. And um, sometimes more God the Father, sometimes more the Son, sometimes more the Holy Spirit. What are some of the, and this might be fun, what are some of the weird ones that are out there, ex- ways to explain the Trinity that people love, but, man, they're not good to use? Um, I've heard a couple. E- the egg? Yeah. Um, Why yeah. is the egg not a good one to use? Well, there's the, sh- what's the shell, the white part, what are the parts of the egg? Yeah, the, the, shell, white, the, the white, white part. And the yolk. Yolk. Yeah. Um, and so... I understand that okay, it's it's one egg and three different parts, um, but I don't think it goes the as f- as far as a true understanding of of what the Trinity is. Yeah. I don't know if that that made yeah. sense, but yeah. And I've heard H two O. You got the water, you got ice, you got vapor. And that's modalism. And that's modalism. <laughs> what you're saying. Um, the, the best way, like you said earlier, the best way is to break out the Athanasius Creed and, it really and do is. it that way because there's really no good way. If you're looking for an easy way to explain the Trinity to your children, you won't well, even, find it. I, I, and actually, this 
I just thought of this, but this goes back, I think. That could be to heresy because we're your, just coming up with it right now. Right. No, no. It reminded me of <laughs> it's it your ordination. Oh, my ordination. I think it was your ordination. Um, Where I don't think it was you. I think it was someone mentioning an explanation of the Trinity about a, like a, a guy who's a son, a husband, and a father, uh-huh. I guess. So he has yeah. like three roles. But again, that's not three persons in one. That's one person with three different roles. So wait, now this brings up another question. Mm-hmm. You were at my ordination? I think I was. I don't remember. I was just in the gallery heckling. It might have been. I don't remember it. Uh, I, I was too busy sweating, so it's possible. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. So the next one, and it's the one we'll, we'll end up with today, is Montanism. And that's probably the one that a lot of people know if you're studying church history. This is one, an early church heresy that most of you might be familiar with. Montanus was uh, one weird guy. Uh, he claimed to be a spokesman for the paraclete or the Holy Spirit, if not the paraclete himself. Uh, he, he thought that. And he, because of that, he declared his prophecies to be the authoritative prophecies that you should bank on them. He, he, his prophecies along with his two prophetesses. Yeah, um, Priscilla and Maximilla, Maximilla, I believe, were the two prophetesses. And, yeah, it, think about some of the more charismatic groups today. It, it's somewhat similar to that. Now, they're not um, necessarily theologically related. There's not like a line that goes back to the Montanists. But um, it was the same kind of idea, basically, that more revelation than what you have is being received and we are the ones that are getting it. Yeah, I think that's the mistake a lot of people make with Montanists. They'll, they'll try to take like a current, modern uh, theological viewpoint and say, oh, because Montanists did the same thing, you guys are Montanists, and he was wrong and you're wrong. <laughs> right. uh, well, yeah, but Montanists also claimed to have the authority of all of his words. Like everything he said, you had to bank on. Yeah, it's really difficult. This is a good just example of church history in general during this period. It's hard to understand some of these heretics, I, I think, truly. Because a lot of times, as you alluded to, we, we don't always have their words. It's a lot of times the words of their opponents. And I think Montanus is, is a good example of that. Where, yeah, one of his opponents said, I went up there and he said, I'm the paraclete. Another one says, uh, I, I heard him and he said, I'm the, the father, son, and paraclete. Which, okay, that's definitely crossing the line if he really said that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that there's another part to Montanism and I think, I think it's Everett Ferguson in uh, his church history book where he kind of focuses in on this. He talks about Montanism, not so much as uh, an early charismatic movement, even though it was that. He talks about it being kind of a, a, a trying to get back to early Christianity, in particular the, the strictness of lifestyle. And um, that's where you have Tertullian who wrote about, you know, against heresies. I mean, he joins the Montanists and is one of those like, why did he do that? Like, we really don't know, but I think it i think it was the lifestyle. I yeah. think he liked that part of it. Yeah, I was reading that, too, when we were talking about Montanism, that the Tertullian, what, what drew him to it is possibly the strict legalistic, because they were a very strict, strict legalist, and that's what made him attractive to the fact that, again, as we've said before, a lot of our theology, none of our theology is created in a vacuum. We, we have things that are happening in, in world history as they develop that kind of feed into that. And one of those things was during the time when Montanus was really gaining steam, you had a um, the existing church was a, a, a moral permissiveness uh, was there. And so the, 
the moral principles held by Montanus and his followers was attractive to many. And I think, honestly, like you said, I think that's what was attractive to, to Tertullian. Um, another thing, too, that Montanus was all about was the lack of a, uh, a reliance on the authority of the bishop. Yeah. So not so much no church structure, but the idea that we don't have to listen to one guy. So there was a individual soul liberty, if you want to use that term, in Montanus that, that sometimes people ignore that we would even hold to say, hey, well, yeah, we, we have an individual soul liberty. Um, that the Holy Spirit has the right to do in our hearts anything he wants to through the teaching of his word. So I wouldn't say we get that from Montanus, but that's something that Montanus held to that, that could have been appealing. All right, well, it's that time of the podcast again where we want to give resources to our listeners. Um, Greg, what do you have in your mind today for your resources you'd like to give to those who listening to the podcast, maybe they're new to church history, or maybe they they love church history, and this is something that, that they could read to help them understanding early church heresies? Well, there's a lot of good like just intros to church history. Um, if you're just getting started, Bruce Shelley's book, Church history, plain language is a is a good one to go to. Uh, I think bef- in one of the previous episodes, I missed I mentioned uh, Easter Gonzalez's book, The Story of Christianity. Usually, you can find it in a two volume set, um, and I would say that's that's a little more in depth than Shelley's. Um, I would say both of those are good places to start, though. Yeah, I would agree to both of those, and I would also add. Uh, just found this resource recently. Um, it's called A History of Christianity, and it's an introductory survey, so it's more of a survey. But there's a great chapter on the early church heresies, and that's written by Joseph Early, Jr. Um, also, I would also add a couple of books uh, for fun. So you mentioned the, the two-volume Justo Gonzalez. He also has a History of Christian Thought mm-hmm. um, series. Um, I think that'd be a great one because what that book does is while a history of Christianity may give you the dates and the events, this gives you how people were thinking. Uh, during that time. So again, it's like a historical theology, like Greg Allison's historical theology, which is another resource I would commend. And that's a huge book, but it's great. It's It's very good. The large print I heard you can see from space. Um, (laughs) It's almost as big as the ESV study Bible, but you have, it's Greg Allison's historical theology. Uh, There's another book called historical theology by um, uh, McGrath, Alistair McGrath. Right. And the, the newer, the newer editions of that, it's more compact there's some really good like case studies that are you know put in there that I think really drive home some of the key points in historical theology. And I, th- I think that's a good overview. Well, that takes us to the end of this stop on the Church History Road Trip. Uh, if you have any questions, anything you'd like to know more about early church heresies or something you'd like for us to talk about uh, on an upcoming episode, you can email us at churchhistoryroadtrip at gmail.com. But you can also uh, hit us up on Twitter at church underscore trip. We'd love to uh, meet up with you there.